0: This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr. Mick Pope. This is a, a podcast in science, the environment and the Christian faith, but this episode is its a science geek episode. I want to talk to you about a recent scientific paper, and, and don't worry, I'm not going to go into too much detail per se to nitty gritty, but it's about something that's important. It, it links to the movie, you may have seen it, The Day After Tomorrow. Now I tend to eschew, eschew uh, Hollywood Disaster movies. There's enough drama in the real world without buying into them. But in The Day After Tomorrow, the uh, Gulf Stream collapses, or more technically something known as the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, which is quite a mouthful. As the name suggests, it's a phenomena in the Atlantic, so it's an ocean phenomena. Meridional simply means north-south, it's a fancy Latin word for it. And overturning circulation refers to the fact, and we'll get into this in a bit, that there's a surface current, but then there's a deeper phenomena beneath. And a paper has just come out in recent days entitled Current Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation Weakest in Last Millennium. And so that sounds rather serious, and indeed it is, and I'm going to talk a little bit about Uh, what the paper says, but it's certainly not the first paper that's talked about this. I've got in front of me here, and if you hear the shuffle of papers, apologies, a paper from Nature Climate Change in 2015, which says uh, the title is Exceptional 20th Century Slowdown in Atlantic Ocean Overturning Circulation. So the most recent paper is actually a set of um, proxy measures of the state of the environment, which measure directly and indirectly the state of this overturning. And they're just really nailing the fact that this phenomena, that the 2015 paper talks about, is really true. Likewise, if I shuffle through my my papers here um, and find the other one, and this one's from 2018, anomalously weak Labrador Sea convection and Atlantic overturning during the past 150 years. So this is really not... Um, sensationalist science—it's really something that's been happening for the past little while. Although some of the titles of the, the recent material might sound a little bit like that, you, maybe you've not seen this, but uh, it was in Science Daily: Gulf Stream system at its weakest in over a millennium. So that pretty much captures the title of the previous of the actual paper. Or more more mainstream, the Washington Post scientists see strong evidence of slowing Atlantic Ocean circulation and Achilles' heel of the climate. Now I'll head the, it off at the passes that the, the day after tomorrow is way too dramatic and we're not talking about something that will shut off overnight, but we are talking about something that we see now. It's a signal of human-caused climate change, so it's important for me to cover this phenomena to let you know that yes, climate change really is real and it's really serious and we've got very strong evidence of it in many aspects of the earth system. But in order to understand why it's significant, I want to give you a a bit of a lesson about earth system science and about how everything works. So the first thing to note is to ask the question of what drives the weather? What drives the climate system? And the first thing, and the major thing is, is that there's more heat is received at the tropics than is it received at the higher latitudes. Now, just in case you don't know, latitude is an angle. It measures the angular distance between the equator and... Well, with the equator is zero, so 90 degrees is the North Pole and minus 90 degrees is the South Pole. And so because the Earth is a sphere... and Apologies if you're a flat earther, you're listening to the wrong podcast. Or maybe you're listening to the right podcast. But the Earth is a sphere, and so that means that the... Sun's rays hit the surface of the Earth more obliquely in the higher latitudes, as we call them. So less radiation, uh, in which we measure in watts per meter squared, that's joules per second per meter squared, so energy units of energy per second, and you can think of watts, uh, think about light bulbs, for example. Uh, so less energy is received in the higher latitudes than in the equatorial regions, and so the a circulation results to redistribute that heat, in essence. What that means is that air rises at the tropics, it converges near the surface, and warm, moist air uh, forms deep clouds, and so you get the monsoonal rains and the formation of tropical cyclones and so on. And the fact that the Earth's tilted at 23.5 degrees means that, of course, you get the seasons, and so this region of convergence swaps from one hemisphere to another. We're currently moving out of the North Australian monsoon season slowly and it'll soon in a few months be monsoon over Southeast Asia and India and so on. So the winds converge, moisture is condensed and forms cloud and rain and so on. And then the air ascends and as the rain falls out and that air moves to higher latitudes, it descends in a region known as the subtropical ridge, which is a belt of high pressure systems. And that region tends to be fairly dry and arid. So think about where the world's major deserts are. They tend to be under the subtropical ridge, so at like the centre of Australia, for example. Uh, subtropical ridge, you can think about pressure in terms of ridges in the same way as, say, when you go bushwalking. You walk along the ridge, if you step off the ridge, your height decreases, you go down towards a valley, step off a, a high-pressure ridge and the pressure decreases. So you have this three-dimensional circulation. And the fact that the Earth rotates means that the winds that return near the surface uh, are... Uh, Deflected, So instead of blowing straight from high latitudes towards the equator, in the southern hemisphere, they're deflected to the left, so they get the southeasterly trade winds. Um, This is from days of sailing ships, so trade is a bit of a euphemism, (laughs) given the colonial period. So the heating difference between the equator and the poles drives an atmospheric circulation, and that redistributes the heat. But as the winds blow over the ocean... They induce waves and swell, but they also drive a current, which is the movement of a mass of water. So there are some fairly famous currents around the planet. Two that are of particularly significance of this is the Kurashio Current off Japan and the Gulf Stream off North America. Now let's take a step back and think about, let's say for example there was no atmospheric motion for a second and no currents. The temperature that you would experience day to day would be purely a function of where you were on the globe. So the higher you were, the colder conditions would be. Now, if you allow for wind uh, to blow as a result of the, the, this three-dimensional atmospheric circulation, then the, the temperature changes over time, depending on the direction from which the wind's blowing, as well as where the sun is in the sky. So, for example, in Melbourne, it's hotter when you have a northerly wind because that's bringing air from further north, Um, over the deserts and and from the tropics than when the wind's blowing from the south and blowing sometimes from very far down south from Antarctica or or near there. The same goes with ocean currents. If you have a warm current, then that warm water will heat the air that's above it. Likewise, if dry air blows over warm waters, you drive evaporation, and so you add moisture to the air. So there are places in in North America and in Europe where if it wasn't for the warm current of the Gulf Stream, conditions would be much cooler and drier, to the point where agriculture would be much more difficult. So here you get the kicker of the importance of the Gulf Stream and the AMOC, this three-dimensional circulation. Now, what precisely is involved in this AMOC? Well... If I want to know whether or not air is going to rise or sink in the atmosphere, I need to know the temperature and the amount of moisture involved. And then I can work out what's known as the atmospheric stability. So I talked about the uh, the monsoonal environment that's unstable and it's very moist. In the oceans, it's if I know, want to know whether water is going to rise or sink, if it's more or less dense than the water around it, I need to know its temperature and how much salt is in it or its salinity. So as waters migrate north in the Gulf Stream, they become cooler over time. They're cooled by the environmental air. But also, um, water evaporates. As I said before, if you've got drier air blowing off the continent, it evaporates some of that water. When you evaporate water, you leave behind salt. And the higher latitudes you get still, when you start to form ice the salt is left in the ocean waters and the ice is, is pure water. So all of these things add to an increase in the salinity and an increase in the density. So at some point those waters migrate so far north and they become so cold and so salty is that they're dense, so dense they start to sink down. And this is the idea of the meridional overturning now is that you have a surface current And then the waters sink and then you've got a deep ocean return current which flows all the way to the antarctic waters so it's this massive overturning if you can somehow disrupt that then you disrupt the supply of uh, heat and moisture to high latitudes and you can in fact induce ice ages now all of this comes from the study of ice cores where you can extract the carbon dioxide and the methane to see what greenhouse gases were in the atmosphere where you can compare different isotopes of water, be it oxygen-16 or oxygen-18, so it's different amount of neutrons in the nucleus, and from that ratio you can work out what the temperature was. From ice cores you can look for sulfur to see what kind of volcanic activity was happening at the time, and pollen grains to, to tell you what kind of vegetation was about. So we know, for example, that uh, cold periods ice ages that are driven by changes in the Earth's orbital parameters, which redistribute the heating. Um, Let me explain that. So the Earth is tilted at 23.5 degrees, and that varies over 41,000 years, between about 22 and 24. The shape of the Earth's orbit changes over time, its eccentricity. And finally, the direction that the North Pole points to, the pole star, changes. So all of these things give rise to changes in the amount of sunlight and where it's distributed. So you can imagine that if you have a cooler summer than usual at the North Pole, you'll get less ice melt, less snow melt. Snow over time becomes ice. Ice reflects sunlight. If ever you've skied, you know you have to wear goggles as well as all your warm gear. The more sunlight you reflect, the cooler things get, the more ice you get. And so you get something known as an ice albedo feedback effect, which means the more ice, the cooler it gets, the more ice and so on, you get an ice age. And that changes with the solar, um, the variations in the amount of sunlight and how it's distributed around the earth. That means that you have, as a result of feedback mechanisms, uh, less methane in the atmosphere because you've got less rain and less wetlands. uh, And more carbon dioxide is stored in the oceans. And so you see more grass, pollen, grains in ice cores than you do uh, forest, because uh, grass can cope with dry conditions globally. So we know that those changes in the Earth's orbital parameters produced ice ages over long periods of time, 41,000 years, 100,000 years, and so on. But scientists, when they started looking at ice cores, saw that there were changes that were much more rapid in the global climate. And ask the questions of what could drive that. And it turns out that changes in the AMOC uh, were driving that. Changes in the strength of the Gulf Stream. So how does that happen? Well, let me tell you when I can find my info here. So in, in normal conditions, you have heat being transported to the, the higher latitudes in the North Atlantic. That's the condition that we have now. The more heat you transport north, the more you uh, warm the ice sheets and cause the ice sheets to melt. And what that does is it results in a lot of fresh water ending up in the North Atlantic. Now remember what I said, that the upward part of this circulation is a surface current, but the downward part is driven by cold, salty water sinking. But if you keep adding fresh water to that... Then you will reduce the amount of sinking that occurs and reduce the strength of the surface circulation as a result. So the ordinary warm conditions with a strong current lead to ice melting, lead to the reduction in sinking, which lo and behold leads to cold conditions. Uh, and then those cold conditions um, reduces the meltwater input from the ice sheets, which allows the surface salinity to grow again. And the surface salinity growing again means sinking waters, means a strengthening of the surface current, means a transport of heat northwards. So you get those rapid flip-flops, which happen on their own quite naturally over time, which means that you move in and out of uh, colder periods globally on a number of different timescales. Changes due to the Earth's orbit, changing where the sun's heating occurs, And changes over a shorter time, this flip-flopping in the ocean system. So it's really quite complicated. And we we know that all other things being equal, in terms of the orbital parameters, one, that we should be slowly heading towards a new ice age in thousands and thousands of years' time, not tomorrow, um, not in a few decades, but that that has been offset by the greenhouse gases that we've been putting into the atmosphere. And so you would expect then, oh, well, that means that uh, we've... And in fact, the figures you know, suggest for hundreds of thousands of years of order because the the Earth's temperature will be a degree Celsius warmer. Even if we switched off greenhouse gas burning tomorrow, we would lock in one degree Celsius of warming for of order 100,000 years because of the mechanisms involved in storing carbon dioxide. It it sits in the atmosphere for a long time. But that then takes us back to the paper uh, that's been recently published, and I'll talk about that in the second half of the program. Welcome back to the program. I've been hitting you with some Earth system science. We've been talking about something known as the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation, which is a surface current driven by winds on the ocean and in the the high pressure systems that sit around the globe and supported in the return part by cold, uh, increasingly cooling waters becoming more and more saline due to evaporation of water and the formation of ice sinking back down. But we noted that if that's the case, then you get a flip-flop in the system, quite on its own, quite naturally. Which is to say that if you have warm waters moving north, uh, you heat the atmosphere and you melt ice, that results in fresh water entering into the Atlantic Ocean, which reduces the salinity, which reduces the sinking. And so you move into a cold phase, or an ice age Um and then that means that the cylinder can build up again and the sinking occurs and you get these flip-flops between the two. Now what recent research is showing is, is what's been expected or anticipated for some time is that if we continue to burn fossil fuels and put greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and absorb more heat, then we will melt our ice sheets. If we melt our ice sheets, that results in fresh water increasing in the Atlantic. And what that means is that you then reduce the salinity and you weaken the strength of this Atlantic meridional overturning circulation. So the, the most recent study finds that for the past thousand years, in fact, to go, the, the data sets involved go back to 400 AD, or CE if you prefer, show that the AMOC is at its slowest For that period. So, we've only got direct measurements of the flow in the AMOC since 2004. So, as is the case in science, in climate science particularly, we rely upon proxy data. Now, what's proxy data? Um, I, several years ago, used to live in New South Wales, which is a state of Australia for my overseas friends, and I had motor insurance. You know, if you have an accident or someone runs into you, whatever. And the insurance company was NRMA. Then they floated and gave shares to all of us who had our insurance, a small number of shares. Now each year they have a board meeting and I know nothing about it, I don't pay any attention really, and but I could vote and they send me a proxy form for that, which means I'm essentially voting as if I was there. So proxy is an indirect measure and I started to talk about those sorts of things last time uh, and it's There's three sources of proxies. There's the reconstruction of surface or subsurface temperature patterns in the Atlantic Ocean that reflect the changes in the ocean heat transport associated with this AMOC. And that can be things like, I indicated earlier, the difference between um, oxygen isotopes. And I won't go into the details of that, but by those, you can infer the temperature directly. Reconstruction of subsurface water mass properties. Uh, And so different... Different water bodies from different parts of the globe have different properties. And you can use those to determine changes in the AMOC. that's a more Arctic or a more mid-latitude type water mass. And you can also look at physical changes in deep-sea currents, such as those reflected by changes in sediment grain size. So there's a bunch of fancy um, type proxies. And I'm certainly no expert in paleoclimate when it comes to the oceans, but there's some, as I noted earlier, there's some fairly fundamental proxies that you can use when it comes to, to land temperatures, sorts of things. Now, the key thing about this is that proxies have their own errors and biases, which is not to say that they're useless, it's just to say that in science you always exercise a fair degree of caution. The exciting thing about this paper is that they use 11 different proxies. Oh, and I should note that there's things like, for temperatures, sediment cores. So you can drill in the mud for former lakes or the bottom of the ocean to get at these things. Ice cores, as I talked about earlier. For temperatures, things like tree rings. And to look at the width of the the growth of the tree rings each year. Um, Stable isotopes, not in just ice cores, but in corals and in foraminifera shells, which is a, a sea life that builds a calcium carbonate shell. So you can a- analyze those. But the key thing is, the really interesting thing is, is they've got 11 data sets of different proxies, and nine of them all say that the significant lowest interval is at the end of the period of data, which is in the recent period. So you, they not all of them overlap in the same way, but they all kind of end from the 90s onwards, and they all indicate, bar two, with statistical significance, that this circulation is the slowest that it's been for some time. What it shows is that it was stable before the 19th century, uh, that there was a... That's um, the 20th century, the 1900s. Rapidly declined about 1960, and then recovered in the 1990s, and started to decline again in the mid-1990s. 2000s, the, the first decade of this century. What they do know is that there are changes that are not uh, in those proxies that are not directly related to the AMOC on a decadal timescale. So on timescales of decades, there's different things that are influencing this pattern. But if you look at over century timescales and longer, you see there's a, something that's consistent. It's a consistent picture with changes in the strength of this northward transport of warm waters. One of the things that's, um, that shows the consistency with this, and obviously I can't show you because it's not in front of you, but if you look at maps of where the temperature has changed over time, what you can see, and I'm looking at it now, uh, there's, I've got a map here in front of me, and it's the linear trend in um, degrees Celsius per century from 1901 to 2013 and it shows warm spots right across the globe now that of course is consistent with global warming isn't it that if you burn greenhouse gases uh, sorry burn fossil fuels and release greenhouse gases in the atmosphere then the entire planet should warm except of course you get local variations and the local variation is this big cool blob um, in the very northern part of the Atlantic which means that the warm current's not getting as far as it used to so there's this um, cold anomaly. So the entire globe from, from this map here is warming, except this tiny little blob. And this tiny little blob is where normally the warm waters would continue to push north in, in the, um, the Gulf Stream, and they're not. So that's entirely consistent then with a weakening of the AMOC, this Atlantic meridional overturn. So why is why is that important? Well, if you look, I'll just talk quickly about paleoclimate history. Uh, it's likely that variations in this played a role in driving human evolution. So if you get rapidly rapid changing on timescale of less than a thousand years, of moving from warm to cool conditions, what you find is cooler environment is more arid. There's less. Roughly speaking, there's less energy to drive evaporation, so there's less rainfall. So in Africa, what that meant, and we're talking um, in the, the Pleistocene. So going back, no, the Pleistocene, in fact, going back a, a couple of million years, is that variations in AMOC led to drier conditions in Africa, which meant fewer trees and more savannah. And our ancestors, Australopithecus afarensis, was um, very small indeed. Maybe you've heard of the fossil Lucy, which is a classic example of Australopithecus afarensis. So if you're small and you can't run very fast, and your shoulders are built for climbing, not throwing projectiles at at big saber-toothed cats, etc., or the equivalent thereof, then you're gonna make an effort to run real quick. and it's been suggested that that was a driver in um, the development of bipedalism for walking around on the ground. Likewise, at not quite the same thing, um, well, it is in fact the same thing, that a, a massive um, catastrophic emptying of a, an ice-bound lake over North America led to a period referred to as the Younger Dryas. So coming out of the last ice age proper, driven by these orbital parameters, a lake, uh released all its fresh water into the Atlantic and or the Arctic Ocean. And they went through a sharp uh, cool period in the Middle East, in the Levant, in the so-called Fertile Crescent. And it's been suggested that that was one of the final drivers towards people settling down and engaging in agriculture. Their food sources became more scarce, so for for hunting and so on. And so there was a number of different responses and we see an improvement in arrow technology, for example, uh, in the period but you see a movement from people who engaged in you know harvesting wild grains to settling down in permanent villages and having grain pits so evidence of storage of grain so these are just a couple of things our very existence um, and now also our way of life but what happens in the modern period if you're engaged in in agriculture if you have huge cities with a, a massive global population well of course we're worried about global warming, as well we should be. But what happens if you end up with these cold waters forming? What, what does that do? Well, already we're seeing uh, uh, irregularities in climate. So what happens is if you get this cold blob in the very northern part of the of Gulf Stream, the warm waters aren't moving as far north, and they're actually collecting off the east coast of the United States. Um, So scientists now note that uh, the modest slowing of 15% of the AMOC has been accompanied by, quote, odd temperature patterns in the ocean and the significant upending of certain key fisheries, such as lobster and cod, off the coast of New England. It's contributing to sea level rise in that region and it can contribute to um, the spinning up of... Severe weather, uh, intense low-pressure systems. The cold blob that I was talking about, which is in the absor- ocean to the south of Greenland, um, is um, yeah is evidence of this this um this melting of waters. And so, obviously, if uh, you get a cold blob, well, then there are certain um, aspects of life, like agriculture, that become much more difficult. Now, what they're not saying is that we expect this day after tomorrow type phenomena to occur uh, within decades. But the slowdown of the AMOC is certainly having impacts now, as I've just highlighted. So we're not to think that all of a sudden um, uh, we're going to go into this day after tomorrow type uh, type environment, but um, it still has its impact. So. I found another quote here um, from the the article in Science Daily. As the current slows down, this effect weakens and more water can pile up at the U.S. East Coast, as I noted, leading to enhanced sea level rise. In Europe, a further slowdown of the AMOC could imply more extreme weather events like a change of the winter storm track coming off the Atlantic, possibly intensifying them. Other studies found possible consequences being extreme heat waves or a decrease in summer rainfall. Uh Now, this scientist, uh, what's his first name, Ramstorff, Stefan Ramstorff, who is a co-author of the current paper and wrote one of the other papers I mentioned earlier, notes that if we continue to drive global warming, the Gulf Stream system will weaken further by 35 to 45% by 2100, according to the latest generation of models. This could bring us dangerously close to the tipping point where the flow becomes unstable. And then you start to look at the day after tomorrow type scenarios. So, I should note too, and this is a, a, a statistic that I, I should, wanted to, to mention earlier, that the normal flow through the Gulf Stream is a hundred times the flow of the Amazon River, which is the world's largest river system. So, we're not you're not talking about turning on or off a simple tap here. You're talking about a massive shift in a major feature of the Earth's global climate system. Thirty five to forty five percent by end of century of the biggest ocean overturning system the globe has and and as i a, as a quoted colder waters to the south of gre- greenland and warmer lo- waters cl- now building up over the east coast of the united states having a profound effect uh, on the climate as well as the, the background um, sea level rise uh, Oh, sorry warming of waters and, and the sea level rise that's also there So, I mean, ice ages are nothing to to sneeze at. It's not like, oh, well, this is going to just undo or balance out the impacts of global warming. No, quite to the contrary, it creates another set of circumstances that are incredibly difficult for human society to continue business as usual. So, to summarise all of that then, human beings, when we add greenhouse gases to the environment, by burning fossil fuels and clearing land and, and making cement and all these other things, the response of the planet is not linear. It's not like turning the knob on the volume of your TV or turning up the heat from your heater or the cooling amount of cold air out of your air conditioner. You get non-linear responses. You get to tipping points where things respond in highly non-linear ways. What it illustrates, uh, I guess to put a a little theological spin at the end, as as a Christian climate scientist, is that we're not in control. We think that we we exercise mastery over the planet with the technology that we put in place. And again, I'm not being anti-technology in any way, shape or form. But the ethos that we bring to it has has, basically becoming undone. So it's really time for a rapid rethink of the way in which we run our civilization, Because if we don't do that, and we don't make some fairly rapid changes, then the Earth's climate system will make it for us. And rather than making it part of some end-of-days, apocalyptic-type scheme, remember that this is our own doing, From a theological point of view, we can say that we've been created with limits in a system with limits, and it's a a recapitulation of the grasping after the fruit, at the words of the serpent. And the lie is that uh, our technology will bring us mastery, when our folly in applying that technology is only bringing disaster. Sorry for that bad news, Um, but there is still time. And there is still hope, both from a scientific and from a theological point of view. So once more, thank you for listening, and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players, and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.